about them Irish. I can't take it anymore. I need a national championship. This is the Four Horsemen Podcast. Ian Book was as good tonight as anybody I've ever seen. We couldn't tackle him. I mean, we harassed him. We had people around him. There could have been six sacks. We could not get him on the ground. And then he made some unbelievable plays on third down. I don't know if he's in the Heisman race or not, but he should be. His record is 29-3. and three. He's fast. He's quick. He's accurate. He's smart. He's not going to do things to get his team beat. But I was so impressed with him tonight. I was impressed with him as much as any quarterback I've ever seen. That is a quote from North Carolina head coach Mac Brown, who has seen some of the best quarterbacks in college football history. Steve, what are your thoughts on on what Coach Mac just said? Uh, thank, thank you, Mac Jones. Uh, Mac Brown, sorry, Mac Brown. You know how good I am with names. Uh, thank you, Mac Brown, for listening to the podcast um, <laughs> and and hopping aboard the uh, the Ian book for Heisman train. No, I. I I think it's it's come become abundantly uh, apparent, you know, that the guy is playing with swagger, he's playing with confidence, just as we predicted, and he went into that, you know, that that uh, that field down in UNC and did everything that he should have, and and more. And I think he's really, if you, I know it's a stupid thing to say, but if you take the first three games out of the season, he is absolutely at, at the national stage in the Heisman conversation. And he he doesn't have the the touchdown passes and you know and and we talked about this little pre-show where we basically just get it inside the twenty and then let Kyren just smash into people for like you know four or five times until he's into the end zone. So he's not gonna have those those TD numbers. But holy shit, what an efficient efficient player! And that seemingly is incapable of making mistakes at this point. So yeah. Uh, Mac is, has seen quite a share of talent. You think Vince Young back in 2005 when they won the title against USC against against when they played against Matt Weinert. Um, yeah, Ian Book, very impressive. Yeah, he's really turned it on. Um, there was a stat that he broke a record at Notre Dame for most consecutive throws without an interception. He surpassed Brady Quinn's record of 226. He hasn't thrown a pick since Duke. Um, he only had one bad game, I would say, this year. was uh, prob- Well, Duke and Louisville were not great, but the rest of the season he's been playing at a level that would put him on par with some of the other quarterbacks. And just to give you the, kind of the numbers here, we, we use QBR, um, which is EPA-driven, and it's adjusted for, for opponent, for garbage time, it accounts throwing, running, all those things. Um, he's currently now 10th in the country at 85 um, that includes players above him who've only played a few games. When you factor out the games played, and the Heisman has always really gone to a team that's competitive, that has big wins for whatever reason, Ian Book is in the conversation. I, I can't think of a running back or receiver or defensive player who is in the Heisman conversation or deserves to be. The Heisman conversation right now is legitimately Kyle Trask of Florida, Mac Jones of Alabama, you have Justin Fields in Ohio State, uh, Trevor Lawrence at Clemson, Zach Wilson, BYU, 
and then Ian Book at Notre Dame. And, and I put on my account, my Heisman rankings, my power rankings right now, if, you know, if the season ended today, who I'd vote for. I got Trask 1, Jones 2, Book 3, Wilson 4, and Lawrence 5. Lawrence is hard to evaluate for me because he hasn't played so, enough games, but he's played more than he would need to to be qualified. Justin Fields is just not making it on my ballot. I think we really need to talk about Ian Book being a Heisman hopeful just by default of the the players who are eliminated, the fact that he's had Heisman moments that nobody else has had yet. He's beat Clemson on that on that game tying drive in the overtime. I mean, we can get to the flip, but you know, let's get to the flip. What did you think of that play from the North Carolina game? <laughs> Holy crap, man. Um it felt like obviously there has to be a signature moment, and I don't think this will be the signature moment. I just think you can see that he almost, to a point, has it. Whatever the it factor is. You think Johnny Manziel, that number two, you know, at home, crashing into his, his own guy, the ball going up in the, the air, you know, f- turning around, catching the ball, doing a freaking somersault, basically, rolling the pocket, throwing the ball downfield, and getting a, a completion against Alabama, right? So that that's kind of what it felt like. It's just... It's not going to be the the prettiest football play in the history of football. It's not going to be a forty yard frozen rope, you know, in the perfect position on in one on one coverage. But it's a guy who evades pressure, gets into the open field, gives his guy an opportunity to make a play, and it was pretty swaggy doing it. I mean, that that could have gone in a number of directions, but at a certain point, you just have to have a level of talent and a level of skill to be able to pull that off. A lot of it is luck, don't get me wrong, but you you don't make that play unless you have the confidence that Ian Book is playing with right now. And and yeah. that confidence is Heisman-level confidence, and and I think it's it's showing through on the field. I would say some people think that's a stupid play and a play that shouldn't have been made. I think that was wizardry. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was pure genius, and maybe that's a little bit of bias. But if you look at the play from the front angle, so not the TV broadcast, but like the end zone footage of it, Michael mm-hmm. Mayer is alone in front of him. Oh yeah, yeah I that don't was think not it's a guy with stupid five feet of him at least. No, I think it was it was very athletic of him, and it just it, that is in the highlight reel for his Heisman package. It's it's that game. It's and you said a Heisman moment. I think the Heisman moment. Davis throw against Clemson. Um, the the shrug steps up into the pocket and throws it long. I think that's his Heisman moment um, and potentially another one in the conference game. And for Book to ever even win the Heisman at this point, he would have to. We'd have to go undefeated, and he would have to perform excellently throughout the rest of the season, as we've said. And he's on pace for that. So I was watching the Alabama Auburn game, and Mac Jones threw the ball down the field a lot, and it made me realize that the reason Book doesn't have those plays in the highlight reel or doesn't have the same kind of passing yard statistics or touchdown statistics is that we don't let them do that. I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't run a lot of play action or a lot of pump fakes. Uh, so like a stop route and then go on a pump no fake. Yeah. We, we don't really do that. We, we work methodically and I know book is more comfortable with methodical work, but rarely do you see a play design where it's, a receiver streaking down the field. I mean, other than the Avery Davis catch against Clemson, you don't see it too often. And I would love to incorporate that more into the offense because it would be more explosive, which we know is important, but it would also, I think 
really make people realize how good Ian Book has been this season. Um, where do you stand currently on Ian Book as a Heisman hopeful? Do you do you think he's deserving of the title? Do you think he's you know in the top five? What were your thoughts? He's for sure in the top five, top six at the very minimum. I think you had a very fair rationalization in regards to your your one through five, even one through six. If you I guess if you if you want to throw in Fields there, um, but yeah, I mean, so so obviously it's it's Trask and, and Jones. You know, those guys are just incredible. They're next level. Trask is, is putting up elite numbers, literally, in, in line with uh, with Burrow last year. Um, you know, keep in mind that those guys are playing. It just feels like their their teams are just so much better against every other team they're playing. For all the uh, the hype that the SEC gets, let's face it, they have four good teams and then a, a steep drop-off. Like... <laughs> Mississippi State, Mississippi, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, like good, good, but nothing special whatsoever. So when they, you know, when when Alabama and and you know Georgia and Florida beat the living piss out of these teams, okay, yeah, they're very good. But I don't know. It's just I, the point I'm trying to make is it just feels like the the pieces around. Trask and and Jones essentially make them the guys that they are. Same with Trevor Lawrence. You know, that that offense, as we saw with DJ coming in, you can design that. And and I, I actually did catch a glimpse of of them playing this past weekend. And the, the way that their offense is designed, very, very gimmicky in a in a manner of speaking, a lot of like fake pitches. <laughs> and then you, you know, it's it's like throwbacks and then like I I don't know. I don't know how that how they run their playbooks. It's it's very unique. But it just doesn't feel like they're relying on the quarterback as much. And and pro- that's probably better for them. Whereas it feels much more with Notre Dame's offense and Ian Book, it's all it's it's make or break with him. And and every step of the way, he's he's had it made. He's 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 made the plays. He's made uh he's stepped up to the occasion. So that's I, I if you want to put an emphasis on you know the Heisman going to the most outstanding player. I, again, we've had this conversation where it's not the most valuable player, but if if the the value that Ian Book adds comparatively to those other guys at the top of the list, it just it goes a longer way for me than it would obviously your your average Heisman voter. So that's why I I would very much so be with you in putting Book in in higher regard because if Brandon Clark or Drew Pine were in. You know, if 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 book had gone down, we're not winning a game the rest of the season. Or <laughs> right. well, I mean, it's Syracuse next week, so like, well, obviously that's I I could go out and play QB and we win, but uh, the point is, is is we'd be in deep trouble, right? So it yeah. it just feels like uh, those other programs are just a little bit more systemic, whereas with Notre Dame and and book, it's the it factor, and I think the it factor should show through with Heisman voting. So I think a lot of people would maybe actually count that against Book because they think the run game is what's driving Notre Dame, but that would be wrong. You know, the Notre Dame run game isn't the reason we're winning. That's not the reason we've beat Clemson. That's definitely definitely not the reason we beat Clemson. But that's definitely not why Notre Dame is where they were. It was better, and you guys recall, too, if you follow the NDFB analytics, they were keeping track of the EPA per play run per pass throughout the year. In the first four weeks, the run was better. Because we're in short sample sizes, we were playing Florida State, we were playing Florida State, and 
basically <laughs> the run was was just super efficient and that's come back down to reality and we have been able to dominate and to beat these top teams because of Ian Book and if yeah I think if we're making the valuable argument you're spot on Ian Book is the most valuable player in college football right now among the teams who are elite and who are in this Heisman conversation because with due respect to um, the quarterback out of Ole Miss I think Corral is his name you know he's got electric numbers yes. I would consider him for Heisman but this yeah. there is this you know this um but they're gonna go like narrative what, seven and three exactly there's this culture that if you're not in the big games you're not in the Heisman discussion which is why Manti Teo was in the Heisman discussion it's why Ian Book should be in the Heisman discussion um because an undefeated Notre Dame is is clearly um in that top tier of of athlete that's deserving of of the Heisman so let's uh, let's get into the game I think uh, I think that was a good conversation to start off um because as I said on the show, you know, he, he won't be my Heisman winner, but he could win the Heisman. And we were the first people to bring that up. So just just let everyone know that. Um, the Irish beat the Tar Heels 31-17. to 17. Um, The scoreline, which was 14 points, which we covered, by the way, uh, actually wasn't really reflective of the game. Um, North Carolina had a great first quarter, as did Notre Dame. It went back and forth. It was 14-14. Uh, and then that was it. And then North Carolina could not do anything for the rest of the game. In fact, uh, if I if I have the number correct here, they averaged, oh, where is it, seventy eight yards in the second half. It wasn't even average. So they just totaled seventy eight yards in the second half of the game. Unbelievable, and that was without Kyle Hamilton. So the Notre Dame defense adjusted to Howell, who started off the game well. I don't know why North Carolina didn't test further down the field more often, given all the success they had targeting Tariq Bracey, but um, they probably just couldn't. I think the coverage got better. I think we brought um, and they could not get the run game going at all. So this is reflected in the post-game win probability, thanks to Connor McQuiston, our good friend. Uh, 96.3% for Notre Dame. That game wasn't really close. Um, the scoreline wasn't really close, but it was closer than it should have been, in my opinion. Um, here's a fun fact for all you guys. Travis Etienne and Williams of North Carolina, these two best backs in college football we keep hearing, have combined for 56 yards on 23 carries against the Fighting Irish. These are Heisman hopefuls. They and combined. one touchdown. One touchdown, and that was ETN on basically the goal line. Um, this Notre Dame defense is elite. I will take a victory lap from my prediction last week saying North Carolina will score 17 points. I think Notre Dame was going to make a major statement about the quality of this defense. And North Carolina is among the better offenses in college football. That's how good our defense is. And and to limit the run game like that, to completely make adjustments and shut down Howell, it was it was phenomenal. A phenomenal game, in my opinion. At no so, yeah, point did after- I feel like we were going to lose. Yeah, after their field goal to make it 17-14 or 17-10, one of the two scores, uh, did we at that point hold them to like nine straight punts basically to close out the game? So like from the early second quarter all the way to the end of the game, it was like nine straight punts. It was, it was That's insane. That is insane. And to, to see how hot they started, I mean, I wasn't sh- – I was a little rattled, but I wasn't too, too concerned because I knew that Clark Lay was going to make, you know, the adjustments. And I knew that obviously with our offense and with book, 
you know, we're going to be fine at least to contend, you know, throughout this game in its entirety. And then it's a, it's just a, a matter of X's and O's and, and talent. So I, I was confident throughout that we would eventually close it out. But for us to basically clamp down the bleeding artery instantaneously and, and carterize it, <laughs> if I could make some sort of medical reference, it's like we were bleeding and then it just instantaneously stopped, like immediately. And then we Holy murdered crap. the other person. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Like, th- th- to see how much momentum they had, and then they literally just hit a brick wall like Wiley Coyote. Like, oh my god. The the defense stepped up in a huge way. Yeah, it was it was a very good performance. Um, Kirk Hypestreet said after the game, Herbie, Herbie, Herbstreet. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um... He said after the game that Notre Dame would be his number one team. Now, Alabama went out and just did something unbelievable to Auburn, so he ended up putting Alabama number one. The type of performance he saw from Notre Dame was something of the next level. And uh, I saw a good tweet saying, we have to stop talking about Notre Dame possibly getting in if they lose because it really delegitimizes the very real chance that we beat Clemson again. And that was not a Notre Dame fan who said that. So... I, I think the college football world is starting to tune in to Notre Dame and realize that this team is something that they've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even Brandon Walker, which the, our uh, podcast account retweeted, he, he's over at Barstool. He even said he's a Mississippi State SEC guy through and through. And he said Notre Dame is winning the national championship. And he said of the remaining, you know, of your top four teams, whoever it may be, Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and either Ohio State or Florida, he said one of those teams has a good defense. I wonder who he's talking about. Holy crap, what a performance. Yeah, it was next level. I mean, on the offensive side of things, um, this is why you can't look at stats just post-game and kind of make inferences um, as some people do. Our run game wasn't very good. In my opinion, we stagnated a lot. We had a big chunk play, maybe two big chunk plays that accounted for a lot of the yards because we hit, I think, about 150 yards. Um, but Kyron Williams was struggling for a lot of the game to get things done. It wasn't bad, but I don't think it was particularly good. The last drive of the game, uh, which we scored the touchdown that the running game was phenomenal on that drive. Um, but for the most part, I thought we were just okay. It's the quarterback success that got us to win the game and to dominate. I think the way we did. And when we relied on the quarterback, that's the drives we scored on. Um, and I think, Deserves a little criticism here for not throwing the ball enough on early downs, but also play action. I felt like there wasn't enough play action in that game. And just we know how efficient it is and how successful play action is. Um, That's something I think we're going to have to work on more as we prepare for the Clemson rematch because we're going into that game to win and getting those linebackers to bite will be huge. Yeah, for sure. And then to to uh, to go off on your point as well um, and the ND analytics account. Uh, they tweeted this out. Tommy, I get that you'd like to establish the run, but when eight men are in a box, that's called a stacked box. 
when you stack the box on defense, it's because you're trying to force the other team to throw the ball against you because they're confident that they can stop the run and then stop the pass simultaneously. So the play is not actually to run into a brick wall of defenders. It's to use play action and get a guy out in the flat or on a flag route or even on a quick slant. It's because when everyone is attacking you, you have the chance to go over the top. It's called a pass. It's the forward pass. I'm pretty sure Notre Dame invented the forward pass. Uh, so if, if you can incorporate that on first and 10 with uh, 37 defenders in the box, I think to actually have a better expected performance than losing one yard at a time just a that is a good point and i'm glad you said that Notre Dame invented the forward pass it's it's half true we revolutionized the forward pass it was <laughs> it, it featured sporadically throughout the early 1900s but it was newt rockney's team in the in the 1910s um that popularized it and, and made it a staple so in a way we did invent the forward pass um i fully agree there too i mean the ndfba analytics account is, is fantastic and you guys should all follow them just for the knowledge um that they possess i would also like to say third down defense is absurd that is why we beat clemson by the way and uh we're the third best in the country and would be and i saw a tweet i couldn't refine it though in like eight of the last 10 years or something we'd be the top third down defense in college football i'm sure by the end of the season we'll end up the number one team because wisconsin's ahead of us and they've only played like two games um <laughs> so third down defense basically the rate at which other teams convert on you is like in the 20s like the low 20s that's and uh, and and that's unbelievable um yeah this Anytime defense like 35 percent or less is like extraordinarily good yeah and you know what this is a good segue before we get into four horsemen talking about the defense clark lee's name has been mentioned today um as a head coach replacement at vanderbilt hmm. um we're gonna get to that in the mailbag section but um just quick what are your thoughts on on clark lee potentially leaving if he's leaving it's not for vanderbilt that's my original thought. Fair enough. Uh, let's get to the four horsemen because we will circle back to that point um, later in the podcast. Steve, you watched the game. You rewatched the highlights. What are your four horsemen? Yeah, for sure. So my my fourth horseman is going to be Drew White, um, basically the quarterback of of the defense, and and obviously the Joker and, and Kyle are are stars far and away. Uh, but you know, there's, there's definitely role players along the way. Uh, there's about nine other role players and, and, uh, one of them drew white had a fantastic game, five tackles, half a sack, uh, two tackles for a loss and a pass defended. So he was flying all over the field. And even when he wasn't making tackles, he was closing the gaps. So that way their two talented running backs couldn't scat into open field. Cause if they did get into open field, as you saw on the first drive, it could be deadly very quickly. So, his presence was felt on the score sheet, you know, in the stat sheet, and, and also off if, if you, you know, just you know, eyeballed the game as well. So Drew Wright uh, with a great performance. Someone else in the middle of the field on defense that really stepped up, um, Maris you know, This is a three-star guy in his second year on campus? First year? Yes, second year on campus. Redshirt freshman uh, from, from Hawaii. Uh, five tackles, half a sack, half a tackle for loss. Honestly, I think he could have been credited with two sacks or one and a half sacks uh, because he was not only playing spy on uh, on on the quarterback Sam Howell, he was 
you know, plugging holes just like Drew White was, you know, which was allowing for you know Jeremiah to run all over the field and, and get nine tackles in his own right. And then he was also coming up and and as a spy, he was stopping any sort of scrambles. Uh, and, and that that led to some pressures and some sacks from either him or some other defensive linemen. So really, really, really good game by him. It's his first time ever making it into our top four. So great job for Marist. Uh, then the final two are pretty straightforward. Um, I'm not going to go with uh, our running back, Kyron Williams, because he did have 124 yards, but a, a lot of that was chunky, and the rest was basically three- and four-yard gash plays. Uh, but Javon McKinley, six receptions, 135 yards, uh, average of 22 yards per catch, which is awesome. So you know he's adding that component and starting to throw in the consistency of being able to get the ball down the field. And also he's over the last couple of weeks, I'm pretty sure he's hit hundred yards, three games in a row. Yeah. So he's, he's really coming into his, his own. He's, he has some form right now uh, that this is what we need. We need this connection. We need this form in the passing game because, you know, let book cook and, and he's right now absolutely cooking. Uh, and then obviously Ian book uh, 69% passing. Nice. 279 yards, a touchdown, also rushed eight times for 48 yards, which is an average of six yards of rush. Some of those rushes were incredible. Um, and, and I'll get to that in my juice moment when, when we come up on that. But that would be my four. How about you, Dylan? Well, I want to first just say something about our linebacking group because you brought up both Drew White and Maris Leofau. Our I was looking at our depth chart, which, um, you know, which I made, um, and uh, I'm looking at the linebacker group, and it's unbelievable, unbelievable oh my God. talent. So good. I mean, Jack Lamb, who's a really good talent, is like the sixth or seventh guy. I mean, Leofau and Kaiser were are both sophomores in the classroom, but are red-shirted freshmen on the field, and they've both been excellent this year. We saw Jack Kaiser step in and was player of the game uh, during some COVID injuries. And then we saw him just get an interception on like his first snap sense. And then Leo Fau comes in and he was unbelievable, I thought, as well. Um, so, yeah, our linebacking group is is just absurd right now. And it's young, too. I mean, we've got we're going to lose some guys, of course, at the top end, but it's deep and there's uh, lots of talent throughout. Um, so. Do you do you have anything you want to say on the linebacker group at all? It's just we're going to be stacked for for years to come. I think you're exactly correct. And and you look at I mean I think our defensive front seven are going to be very very good. And we have a lot of talent in the back end as well. I don't think that talent has come to fruition yet, with the exception of of Kyle Hamilton. He's kind of the only guy that's grown into his own. And you know Sean Crawford clearly is is a, an experienced guy, and that we we got a grad transfer from Nick McLeod. So I'm not counting in him in regards to recruited, committed, and and then developed into a starter. Uh, so we we do have a while to go with the the back end of the defense, but you're exactly correct. Those linebacking that linebacking core is is absolutely loaded. And they're mostly three stars, which is what I've noticed. Both Marist and um, and Jack uh, were three-star guys in that class. Correct. Um, so it's really interesting how we are taking these three-star linebackers and turning them into phenomenal players because, you know, Drew White's another guy. I don't know if he was a four- or a three-star guy, but he's really developed into his own as well. Uh, the Joker was actually a three-star guy um, when we recruited him. So just 
impressed. Impressed with the way this defense has been developing under Clark Lee. And uh, he's also the linebackers coach. So maybe there is a little bit of um, causation and correlation there. Um, so my four horsemen, I will say um, I want to give an honorable mention to the man with two sacks. Um, do you want to do you want to pronounce it for me? Uh, let me pull up the stat sheet here. Give me literally six seconds. Five, four, three. Because I two, will botch it, and I one. and I don't want to uh, <laughs> to offend anyone. Yeah, for sure. So it, he's, oh, he's one of your favorite players. Oh, it's oh, it's it's Addy. It's it's Adekatempo Ogundeji. I am ninety nine percent certain he is Nigerian, uh, and also an absolute magnificent human being. I love Addy. He's he's just awesome. Yeah, he yeah, of course. Um, I he was so he was my honorable mention. I thought he was fantastic. Um, and uh, for me, the fourth horseman, um, I'm going Michael Mayer. I thought it was his best game as a as another name, true freshman tight end. I uh, made one mistake, but this is what's so impressive with him is throughout the year he has made mistakes, quite a few of them. You know, he's dropped some passes, he's mixed some missed some blocking assignments, and he is still getting game time, and he is still making net positive contributions so huge fan of michael Mayer. he was second in the team in total epa um that uh, connor mcquiston our dear friend our dear michigan friend um posts every after every game um so i thought that in combination i think he had five receptions for something like 67 yards or something yards i believe yeah, I thought he was quite good, um, and he was available on Ian Book's flip, which I maintain is the greatest play ever achieved by a human being. Um, <laughs> third for me, Drew White. You ran through statistics, spot on. I thought he was he, he was all over the place on the defense. He quarterbacked it when Kyle Hamilton was uh, was tossed from the game. He was uh, stepped up big time. Um, so props to him. I think that's his first time making it onto our four horsemen this year. So. Very excited for him. Um, second, uh, we have the same top two. I went McKinley two and book one. Um, just a really good game from both guys. I thought the offense, even though offense made up three of the four horsemen, um, there's a lot of room to grow. And that's something I think that's really encouraging for Notre Dame fans is that uh, we had a lot of guys with very little production in that game. Um, and, uh, and, that's, and that's great because Ian Book played really well too. So, I'm looking forward to see how this season ends, and um, let's move into juice because I know I know that's your yeah. favorite segment. Before we do, before we get juicy okay. here, because we did cover quickly that um, you know the linebacking core is is really set up for future success. I I also do think that the secondary is if if you look. Uh, there's a, so many names in that secondary that we got on signing day over the past couple of years that have been phenomenal. This is something that you, you and I have, have briefly discussed, and I did want to bring it to the podcast. Uh, and this is something based on a topic that we've said multiple times throughout the course of this podcast over the past three years, which is Notre Dame has had so many great teams over the years, 2012, um, you know, 2018, even 2015, right? Was it? Uh, yeah. when yeah, so 2015 was Kaiser's last year. Exactly. Yeah, and it's or his just, last good year. Sorry, <laughs> 2016 year, happened. Precisely. We don't want to talk about that one. Yeah. So it, there's there's been a couple of years throughout where you know we looked real, real, real good, um, but it always just felt like there was one component missing. There was always one missing piece. When we had the offensive line, we didn't have the quarterback. When we had the quarterback, we didn't have the offensive line or the position players or the defense or this, that it, it, now 
as we've stated a couple times, it finally feels like this is after years and years of recruiting classes, we're really starting to get to that level of a lot of consistency and not a huge drop off between, you know, the, the guy at the top of the, the depth chart and, and going downwards. It feels like it's more of a plug and play system. Thankfully, we, you know, when you get to that sort of level, you know, you're truly elite in college football. The question after that long-winded introduction here is, do you feel that this year's secondary, despite us having the greatest safety in the history of Earth, do you feel that this is going to be our kryptonite as we head down this final stretch into the playoffs? If there is a kryptonite for this team, it is the secondary. Um, NDFB analytics have pointed this out, that Trevor Lawrence throws the ball down the field a lot more than DJ did, and that could be a serious problem. I, I tweeted out, I said... It feels statistically impossible how many 50-50 balls this defense has lost. It's unbelievable. Any time the ball is up, I can't think of a time we've defended it well. Um, mm. Our like friend Brace on the show, Michael, should have had that at least a, a batted ball on the touchdown pass that he gave up. It was just a, a, a normal. Yeah. You know, and Michael has fake. made the point that they don't attack the ball. They don't look for the ball as much as some of the SEC defenses do because um, you will see that with, you know, I, I think specifically Florida corners are very good for that. Um, I, when I look at the depth chart, I think safety were actually quite good because when Hamilton went down, uh, Griffith stepped in, uh, DJ Brown stepped in. I thought we were fine there. See, the thing is, corner, we thought at the start of the year, at least the secondary in general, was going to be the strength of the team. And that was predicated based on the idea that Tariq Bracey is going to be in his third year uh, with significant game time. So in the 2018 playoff season, he did play um, a fair amount of football. And this is his junior season now. We expected him to, to make take that next step to be the Troy Pride Jr., to be maybe the Julian Love. And that hasn't happened. And I think that is our weakness now. The way we play our safeties, Kyle Hamilton is mainly used to hammer any kind of run plays. He's not often the cover safety as, as Crawford is. And Crawford, I think, is good, but Crawford has made a lot of mistakes as well. So any kind of long ball, you're kind of hoping that, you know, I think Nick McLeod has been fantastic, actually, but you're kind of basing yourself now on some some younger talent, right? Clarence Lewis is a true freshman. Uh, Cam Hart might see, see some game time, too. Um, and you're kind of relying on these guys in conjunction with Sean Crawford. And that, I think, can be a recipe for disaster, especially if you watch Mac Jones play, the way he throws the ball down the field, the way Alabama plans for that. That could be a problem. But if you get pressure and just, I feel like the law of averages of these 50-50 balls will eventually go our way, um, I think we can get around it. I mean, we saw in the Clemson game, it did burn us, but only twice. And you saw that in the North Carolina game, it burned us, but, you know, two or three times. And the defense makes the adjustments. And I don't know if the adjustments are coming in with the coverage, you know, because we don't see watching the TV game, the TV broadcast, how the, the, the corners are covering. We just see the end result of someone being wide open. So, you know, we can, maybe we can infer, because we don't have the all 2022, 20, yeah, that, yeah. Um, that would show if the corners are improving throughout the, the game. Um, but that could be one thing. It could be game planning, and it could be pressuring the quarterback. And I think with the three of them, I like us. But you are right. I think that is the one group where I am concerned uh, would be the kryptonite. And it would have yeah, been quarterback sure. at the start of the season. So I would much rather have it switch over to that corner group than be the quarterback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
pretty much everything you said is spot on. I'm in, I'm in total agreement here. I still think we're good, uh, all things considered. We still get after the quarterback. We still don't give them much time to beat these guys, right? It, the only time they're getting beat is when there's time, and, and not often with this defensive front seven are, are quarterbacks getting it. Also something worth noting, exactly as you mentioned, Kyle has been much more in the box, whereas Sean has been kind of hanging back, and, and I would be totally comfortable with the flip and an inverse of that. Right, I'm 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 fairly confident that because Sean has played the ma- large majority of his career as a cornerback, uh, specifically a nickel corner, he's a guy that can lay the wood. He can he can hit guys, right? I'm, he's I'm, shown that. I'm I'm very comfortable with Crawford playing in the box, and I just if you have Kyle downfield, like I, we've gone over the statistics over the course of the season, but like what what is his targets against like? Zero for ninety-one with like, with like two interceptions and like six murders. Like, it's like, can you actually throw on Kyle Hamilton? It's impossible. But a lot of the time on these big throws, you see that, unfortunately, it's Crawford maybe making a misstep in one direction or another, specifically against UNC. He did, and it was it was Ham, uh, Hamilton. You know, he was actually playing in the box, so he wasn't playing the center fielder, and that's why you know we're getting burned. So. Uh, basically what I'm getting at is if you want to throw Kyle up against, you know, these inferior teams over the course of the next three weeks, uh, two weeks, sorry. Sure. Go for it. You know, let Kyle be Kyle, let him do his thing. But when it comes to T law coming into town, I'm more than content to, to just play, you know, press coverage on the, on the sides uh, with our corners and just throw him in cover one right at, at, as just playing center fielder. And I think that's a still a recipe for success, but I'm also not a defensive coordinator, and I'm also an idiot. So next topic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that, the humility. Um, yeah, let's get into juice uh, Juice in my nuts. What, for you, and I have a suspicion we might have the same play here, what gave you the juice in that football game? We're going to have different ones, actually, because uh, I'm fairly confident. I know yours at this point. Uh, but I, mine is more of a sequence. So it's a three-play sequence, which I think you can you can add in totality to a Heisman reel for Ian Book, um, and it was in the third quarter. When or no, for, uh, early second quarter, I apologize. When uh, when they ended up scoring with Kyron Williams, and th- literally in three consecutive plays, you had uh, Ian Book step up in the pocket pocket. He broke an arm tackle. Uh, where they were basically going after the ball, holds onto the ball strong, gets a ball downfield, a deep ball right up top to Javon McKinley. Javon makes an excellent play. The throw was incredible. I mean, we're talking just in the perfect position, fingertips, perfect. Uh, Very next play was a designed draw to book where there was not much room to go. But he just was patient. He let everything open up. His guys got into the secondary, open, you know, get a hat on a safety, and all of a sudden he's upfield like 25 yards. And then the very next play was the botch snap, which goes down to Book's ankles. He runs around playing backyard football, gets it back across the field to Kyron Williams, who scampers into the, touch, into the end zone. So those three plays were just like that's when I was like, wow. I've I, I've always called Book, you know, the the really good guy that's just going to protect the ball, but he's not going to be a game breaker. He's just, uh, you know, he's a game manager. He has flipped that switch, and that is just evident and proof right there. The, that three play sequence, he was phenomenal. So that put all sorts of juice into places that 
I don't want to describe because I don't want you to throw up if you're listening. <laughs> it's funny because if you've listened to Brian Kelly, he talks about bringing the juice now. And I like to think Brian Kelly listens to this podcast. He does. Um, we actually do have the same play. Um, oh, okay. for me, it's it's I, I didn't pick the sequence because that's cheating. But um, <laughs> I went with the touchdown pass. In fact, I labeled it the Ian Book Tony Romo touchdown. Um, I had pure nostalgic flashbacks as a cowboy fan watching that play it's the botch snap it's the athleticism to just run like a chicken with your head cut off one direction and then just spin back around and casually just dink it into the running back who has all the space in the world i thought it was brilliant i like i said that was a tony romo type play and you know i'm sure a lot of the listeners remember watching tony romo play it wasn't that long ago um it, it was very similar to that, and I agree with you. That sequence is a Heisman-level sequence. Just the uh, the pure athleticism and the plays that he made in a key part of the game, too. That was to go, I think, equalize because we had gone down. It was. It was 14 So that was huge. Um, so, yeah, that's my juice moment as well. Um, I thought for sure you were going with the flip, so I apologize for cheating. No, that's okay. Um, <laughs> I thought about it, though, because it was it was a good play. Um <laughs> Do you want to uh, to move on to some college football predictions? Yeah, for sure. Um, let's, let's, so I'll pull it up now. Week 13 was quite anticlimactic. Alabama slapped Auburn, um, and that was about it. Ohio State's game got canceled, and we've learned that they are one canceled game away from being ineligible from the Big Ten title. Now, that doesn't make them ineligible for the playoffs, so that would be really interesting. But the thing going around Twitter, and I, it's so hilarious, is that Ohio State has two games left, I believe. They play Michigan State, and they play Michigan. Hmm. Wouldn't it be hilarious if Michigan, knowing they can't beat Ohio State, purposely gets COVID to cancel the game to cost Ohio State a chance to play in the Big Ten title? Here I was thinking that you were going to say Michigan finally beating Ohio State. That's, that's <laughs> In the a year where they're too. probably going to lose their coach that historically can't beat Ohio State, but it would be so much funnier if they intentionally got COVID. <laughs> now, I hope nobody gets COVID. And I hope everyone's safe. But just the idea of Michigan having COVID just to screw over Ohio State is really funny. And... Um, Although it would be pretty funny if they fired Harbaugh and then the very first game without him, they beat Ohio State. That would be pretty funny, too. Or if they Both just scenarios would be electric, and uh, I'd, I'd be okay with either one. As long as no one gets injured, pray for yes. health. Um, so, you know, that has some weird implications on the playoff picture. We don't know what they are yet. Um, the committee came out on Tuesday um, and, and put Ohio State fourth, which is a little interesting. So if Ohio State does a title game and doesn't have that, you know, conference title victory... I don't know if they're going to get in. But on the flip side, there's been so many bad teams this year in the playoff hunt that maybe they do. And that'll be interesting to to keep an eye on looking forward. So for week 14, um, our prediction game here, we're in our, we're our home stretch. Um, I'm leading the group with 32-18 and 18 record, 64%. Um, P-Wagon is next at 28-22 and 22 at 56%. And Steve, you, you hit a stumble last week, went 1-3. and three. Um, You got the Stanford game right. Uh and uh, I tried to be fancy and you went 20 you're 26 and 24 you're above 500 so everything's still in reach and we will do the bowl season again because that's been a, a thing we do now um let's get into week 14 it's a pretty boring week but whatever make do northwestern at minnesota 
Man, I feel like Northwestern's good run has got to come to an end at some point. Well, they lost uh, last week, didn't they? Did they? Yeah, I think they no, lost. I, they lost to Michigan State, right? Ah, uh, again, I, it's one of those <laughs> weeks I was I was scoreboard watching, but uh, it was it was actually my first time ever gambling on college football. I threw in like a ridiculous ten team parlay, and after my first team loss, I was like, ah, screw it, I'm not watching anymore. <laughs> so yeah, Michigan State won twenty nine twenty. Okay. All right. So then I'll I'll take Northwestern to bounce back here. Okay. I'm going Minnesota. I don't think Northwestern is good, and I think we've learned this year the Big Ten is not very good, and uh, everyone seems to beat each other. So that could go either way, though. Next, Texas A&M at Auburn. What do you think? The at is the concerning part because, as we've discussed many a time, Kellen Mond on the road, uh, recipe for disaster. Auburn did get their shit kicked in though. And Bo Nix is just not good. People just like him because of his name. So, um, yeah, Texas A&M, they still have a pretty damn good defense. I think they'll pull this one out, but I would not doubt if this was a closer game than, than a lot of team people down in Corpus Christi hoped. You know, I think Stevie Nicks would be a better quarterback for Auburn at this point, but, um, I'm actually going to roll with the Tigers. War Eagle. I think Texas A&M, everybody is waiting for them to lose so they can put Florida above them because we all know Florida is better than A&M even though they have that head-to-head loss. I think it's coming this week. I think Auburn is going to have a a decent game. Texas A&M wasn't particularly great against LSU, so I think they will not beat the Auburn Tigers. Um, This one's just for the meme and just to bully our friend Connor here. Maryland at Michigan. Who are you taking? (laughs) <laughs> I'm not even trolling when I say Maryland. <laughs> this like uh, normally I would I would do it just to be an absolute troll, but like, I yeah. How sad it is it that at this point, like it's not even hating on Michigan to take Maryland. It might just be the smart thing to do. I'm also going to take Maryland. I mean, why not? <laughs> Michigan barely barely beat Rutgers. Um, they were awful against Penn State. I, let's go Maryland. Yeah. Um, didn't Maryland beat Texas two years in a row as well? Maybe they have a, a like a, some kind of like you know hoodoo against big programs that used yeah, to be important. The, the Terps occasionally will will do a they'll have a, a mini run from time to time where you think like oh okay like this program could actually you know if they get the right pieces they'll contend with Penn State. And Ohio State. And then all of a sudden, you look like two weeks later, and they've got blown out in their next two games, and you're like, oh, okay. So it's the story of Maryland. <laughs> okay, let's stick in the Big Ten. Uh, the only, I think, important game this week is Indiana at Wisconsin. What do you got? I would assume Graham Mertz is going to be back. Therefore, I'm taking Wisco. Yeah, I'm going to agree here, too. I think Wisconsin, now that they've lost, um, there's nowhere for them to choke. And uh, with Indiana, I still don't think is particularly great. So I think Wisconsin is going to win that game. Uh, And last but not least, we have two losing teams out of the SEC, South Carolina at Kentucky. I still think that Kentucky over the past three, four seasons has been building too much uh, to to a crescendo of sorts to just drop off so, so hard and be this quote unquote bad. So I think they have it in front in, in, in them in regards to their roster and their coaching staff. So I'm going to stick with Kentucky. I do like South Carolina. I might end up moving there someday legitimately. Um, but you know, I, I think Kentucky wins this game. This is a tough one. I think cause Kentucky's home. I kind of, 
Kentucky, but I'm going to take South Carolina because they bailed me out against um, Texas A&M, I believe, earlier in the season. I, I took South Carolina to win, so I'm going to stick with my Gamecocks. And uh, I had there was an opportunity there to make a joke, wasn't there? Uh, yeah. All right. Let's. Uh... <laughs> and uh, for what it's worth, just going back through the list, um, just to put in P Wagon's picks here: Northwestern at Minnesota, he's picked Northwestern. Texas A&M at Auburn, he's picked Texas A&M. He has chosen Maryland to beat Michigan. He has chosen Indiana to beat Wisconsin, and he is also he's riding with me in regards to Kentucky. Yeah, thank you for that information. Let's uh, <laughs> let's get into the mailbag. Um, we set a poll for everyone. We said, who do you think is going to be the toughest matchup for Notre Dame for the rest of the year? Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, or another comment? Um, we got a good we got a v- good voter turnout here. Alabama is the overwhelming vote with eighty six percent. Ohio State at six percent. Clemson at seven percent. And one percent said other. And I believe the person who said other. Um, said only Notre Dame can beat themselves. So, uh, Steve, who do you think is the toughest matchup for Notre Dame? Um, yeah, I, I think you, you'd have to go with Alabama just because their quote-unquote strength would be our, our quote-unquote weakness, uh, which is the deep passing game. So, you know, we know that Alabama is going to have a good offensive line because they, they usually get just these monster commits. So I think that they're going to have a little bit more time than like Clemson did to throw the ball against Notre Dame. And as we've seen, we can be exposed. Now, I still think we're good. And I still think it would be a tight game. And I still think that's an, a matchup we can win. I'm not afraid of anyone. If I were to highlight a particular team and a particular unit to take advantage of our weakness, that would be the one. Yeah. I think all those teams are good at throwing the ball deep because they all have Heisman candidates. Um, I'm going to go with Alabama as well. I think the difference is that Alabama's receivers are better than anyone else's. And that is an area of weakness. I can, I can just see them (laughs) tearing past Tariq Bracey and, and company. Um, I think we could beat all of them. And I said that last night to, uh, to Vegas. Um, I think that's P wagon's friend, uh, Alabama fan. I think the top four could all beat each other. The current top four, I think is the best four and they will all beat each other in a round Robin. Um, Alabama's defense and Ohio state's defense is not great. I could see Clemson being the toughest one because Clemson's probably the most balanced of them. Um, mm-hmm. they have that explosive offense and they have a way better defense. So I would say Clemson or Alabama. I went Alabama though, just cause they looked so impressive. Um, I think Ohio State would be surprisingly the easiest matchup for us. And, you know, watch us go play them and lose by 50 now. But um, just because I said it. But I think I think that's how I would rank them. Um, in terms of mailbag, we asked you guys just to send us some questions, whatever you thought. Um, so we'll answer a few of them. Uh, Regison at Regison42 on Twitter said, Hypothetically, if OSU, Ohio State, were to miss the playoffs, who would get in over them? A one-loss Florida? provided they somehow beat Alabama, a one-loss Texas A&M, or an undefeated BYU or Cincinnati. Um, and another question, when did you guys start the podcast? So we start the podcast uh, before the 2018 season. Um, that would have been uh, August 2018. Michigan was our first episode, so good question there. Um, we've come a long way, and our sound quality is a lot better. Um, Steve, how would you answer the playoff question? If, if, uh, if Ohio State's out, who's in? Yeah, uh, well, it, ha- it has to be a one-loss Florida because they would have beaten Bama, right? So you-, you would expect Bama to come in probably at 
it's probably at that point Notre Dame, Clemson, Bama, Florida, or or you can flip flop Florida, Bama. It depends what happens in the Notre Dame Clemson game. So if Clemson wins, it will be Notre Dame, Florida, Clemson, and Alabama. If Ohio State is out, um, that's if. If um, Florida loses, and if Clemson loses, well, you have two new spots, and Clemson might get in as a two-loss team. Um, I think A and M, if they stay one loss in that case, where there's two spots open, would get in, and then I think Cincinnati might be the fourth team. Um, I, but although I think they would just put Ohio State in anyway, I don't think Ohio State is actually going to miss the playoffs because we all know they're one of the four best teams. Um, so it depends what happens there. If, if let's say we split, let's say one of Notre Dame or Alabama loses the conference title game, so you have Alabama, Notre Dame, and then one of Clemson, Florida, the other team is probably A&M. It could be USC, maybe, if USC went undefeated. I doubt it. Um, and it could be Cincinnati. Those are the, the teams you're looking at. I don't think Oklahoma has a shot, but what I would say to you is I, Ohio State would probably be the team unless, you know, there was a real convincing argument otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, another good question from Christian Bogan. Uh, we featured him last week. He, he provides some good stuff for the con- for the podcast, so thanks for listening. Um, with Vandy's news coming out, what should Clark lee and notre dame do personally i've always been an advocate of making lee a coach and waiting it seems that to have worked at other schools um i'm not sure uh if they were all pegged as coaches before they um before the head coach left um and he just gave some examples of lincoln riley and and ryan day um if lee does leave who would be their best replacement so that's the the crux of the question there yeah for sure uh i i don't think that he's going to end up going to Vanderbilt. If he's going anywhere, it's going to be to a a, bit, a bigger team, a better team, right? So um, forgive me because, once again, I, I don't have the world's greatest memory. Uh, who was the defensive coordinator we lost just two seasons ago down to Texas A&M? Uh, that was Mike Elko. Mike Elko, yeah. A&M paid him more than Coach Kelly was getting paid. Yeah, yeah, they paid him uh, an astronomical amount. Um, yeah, so... If Elko was good enough for Texas A&M, which is now a top five program, he went as the D coordinator, though. Yeah, yeah, he he went he went as D coordinator there, which was very strange. You'd have to expect that if you are going to be taking on a offensive line, I'm sorry, a head coach position, that it might not be a top five team like Elko got into because he was he got in as a coordinator, but it has to be a top. 30 team it's got to be a you know a a middling team towards the top of a conference that maybe just can't make it like as like miami as an example now it won't be miami because they have like a newer coach uh who's still implementing their plan but that that's like an example that i could use um you know stanford uh because you know shaw has really been struggling out there if i'm just thinking of like really really good football teams maybe not a blue blood but but a, a team that has all the pieces there they just need the coach Um, allow me to counter that a bit um in 2013 when bob diaco left he went to yukon and at the time he was you know coming off you know he was a season removed from assistant coach of the year he went to yukon i think for a lot of guys just having the head coach opportunity matters and i i think if lee interviews for vanderbilt i think he'd be willing to take it i don't know if vanderbilt will select him 
and I hope Notre Dame can convince him to stay because if look if Brent Venerables can stay at Clemson for eight years, I'm sure yeah. we can hold on to Clarkley. Um, I think we should hold on to him. I think we should definitely be proactive and and Back offer up the base. drop for him. I think we should absolutely do that. Um, I think he might wait to see what other programs open up, like you suggest, um, maybe a Michigan, um, maybe a Stanford, um, to see if he can get something better. Yeah, I don't know if they'll let him go at Penn State, but that could be definitely one. That wouldn't be that wouldn't surprise me too much. Um, so Clarkley might want to keep his options open. I think we can hold on to him. Who I think the best replacement is, I don't know. I I don't follow enough D coordinators in college football to just ring off the top of my head. I'm sure P Wagon could because P Wagon is a coach. Um, you could just hire within like we did with with Clark Lee himself. I think we got to keep the same system though. The the four two five base defense is really good, and I think all the fans are pretty happy with it. Um, so do you have anything else on Clark Lee before we we move on? Yeah, no, just whatever it takes. Yeah, whether it's promising him, uh, you know, the coach next coaching position, totally cool with that. Very, very cool with that. Uh, he he's uh, he's the special sauce, in, in you know, so whatever it takes to keep him on that campus in the blue and gold. I, I, like, I, if I have to personally contribute in in the form of uh, like a check, like just let me know how to, who to make it, who to write it out to. I don't have much money. I'm poor, but. <laughs> whatever I can give, you know, and I'm, I think the entire fan base is, is pretty much going to be in the same position. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. I, I think, I think that if he's going to go, it's going to be somewhere worthwhile. I don't think it'll be Vanderbilt. And I'm also thinking if you're Notre Dame promise him the world and deliver it to him. Yeah, I think they'll definitely make an effort to do that. And, and you'll see that this season, but good question. Um, so let's move on to Syracuse. Um, there's not much to talk about. They're one and eight. They've had their one victory against Georgia Tech. Um, they've even lost to Liberty. They they're surprisingly not good after being good just a couple seasons ago. 2018, ESP. I saw them in yeah. uh, Yankee Stadium. Yeah, didn't you run into P Wagon there too? Didn't you? I, I did. Yes, I did. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so the FPI gives Notre Dame a 98 percent win probability which seems almost impossible to be that high um that's how low they are in syracuse syracuse is averaging 17 points per game and they're allowing 31 in contrast notre dame's got 37 points per game and are allowing 17 um i didn't do any extra nfl kind of research or any kind of um quarterback breakdown because i think we all know syracuse is a bad team I just want to hear from you. What do you want to see from Notre Dame in this in this game? It is senior day as well. Pause for suspense. I would like to see Drew Pine. <laughs> uh, that's obviously joking that it's going to be a blowout and he's going to come in in the second half. Um, now, what, what I would like to see is... Ways to open up the offense. If if there's ever a chance for Tommy Reese to really experiment and just throw the entire kitchen sink at this pathetic, pathetic organization, just kill, literally kill this orange defense, you know, misdirection, open, you know, open up the deep passing game, um, you know, throwbacks, screens, you know, get, get Chris Tyree into the passing game, everything that you could possibly do where you can, you can at least get game experience 
you know, get every single guy you can onto this field in different packages. Just the offense, please, for the love of God, put up 42 points in the first half and do it with swagger. Do it with a whole bunch of different looks and everything. Don't just run the ball with Kyron Williams because we know that Kyron is going to be able to average, you know, six and a half, seven yards a carry in this game. We know that's coming, but it's it's less so the fact that we are going to methodically beat the shit out of them. It's how we do it, and it's it's open up the playbook so that way when we do face Clemson, do we when we do face OSU, Bama, whatever that team may be in the future, you need to have that one play that that you know is going to work. You need that trick play. You need something that's going to you know, when we've gone three and out on two straight drives and we need to get a score, you know, have the have those plays, have that that formation, whatever it takes to just get everything done now. I think it's incredibly important to build upon everything I just said over the course of the next two weeks. Yeah, you said we need you want to see Drew Pine. I'll say I want to see Jordan Johnson. Um <laughs> I think we're in agreement here. I want to see an explosive offense. I want to see Notre Dame. Don't be methodical and take seven-minute drives. Just throw the ball. Just destroy them. You know how to do it. I want to see 10, 20 chunk yards every Braden play. Lindsay is back. He was on the field last week, so he's healthy. Like, open up the fucking yes. field. And another thing is actually get the starters out of there pretty quick. I, we're heading towards the end of the season. We assume the Wake Forest game is going to happen. There's a chance it doesn't which would mean the next game is Clemson, stay healthy. You know, get the get the starters out of there when it when it's clear what's going to happen in the game. So that first half, I like you said 42 points. That's ambitious, but why not, right? Put it put it up put it on them. Uh, you know, keep the defensive play, work out whatever kind of wrinkles you want to work out uh, and get not just the kids in, but get younger players who can make meaningful impacts in. So like Jordan Johnson, I think is a player who should play with Ian Book next week. You know, maybe not start the game, but in the second quarter, I want to see Jordan Johnson take first first team snaps uh, and things like that. Right. And same thing with the linebackers. You want to see more Kaiser. You're going to want to see more um, guys Bo on the Bo Bauer is a good one. Anyone on the end. We have a lot of good defensive line guys that are younger, too. Um, let's just just control the game, dominate them, get out of there, stay healthy. And and that's really, I think, the crux of it for me. Um is there anything you want to talk about before before we go and give our score predictions? I had a topic that you and I briefly discussed ahead of time. I think we're uh, we're running at a pretty darn good time right now. So as a teaser, we have something very interesting that we're going to bring uh, as a hypothetical in the next two weeks. That is a that is a Steve Campy promise for sure. So uh, nothing else that I wanted to bring up. Just teasing that. That sounds good. Um, I think. I think this has been a pretty solid episode for getting things in. Um, trying to stay hyped for Syracuse, of course. You know, UNC took a lot of energy out too, but we're at the home stretch, guys. Uh, the Irish look playoff bound. I mean, barring an absolute meltdown against either Syracuse or Wake Forest, uh, Notre Dame looks like they're going to make the playoff. So, score predictions? Uh, It was 52 nothing against USF. Yep. 55-3. I think we set a new high watermark for points. Interesting. Um, I have it 52-6. to 6. 
Okay. I like how you 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 think of game predictions on the spot, and I think them through, and we end up with like the same number, and that's a little scary. Um, now, of course, this game is going to be fourteen to ten. That's just going to happen now. I'm sorry, um, because anytime we predict a big blowout, who knows what's going to happen the next week? But fifty-two to six, I think that's something we can actually expect. Is just a you know maybe not with the second half offense. You never know what happens, but a first half obliteration is what we should expect and i think 35 points by the end of the first half is the benchmark yeah i think so so i think that's pretty much it right if you guys uh listen on apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review leave a nice little comment um follow us on twitter at horseman pod steve anything you want to say before we go uh well we know what it feels like we know we want to make our Notre Dame great again. It's just there's so many emotions for the for this season, but it's starting to come to a fruition, and uh, we're just a couple of weeks out from learning our fate. So, uh, you know, just keep those Irish eyes smiling, everybody. Go Irish, and, and let's just have a nice, calm, peaceful week as we head into war on Saturday. Agreed. Go Irish, and <laughs> good luck, Syracuse. Yeah, more of a blitzkrieg. <laughs>